Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And today we've got another guest with us. We've got Ju Liu joining us. Uh, he works at No Red Ink, and he's going to be helping us talk about large code bases and maintaining large code bases in Elm. Ju, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So yeah, I'm really uh, excited to have you on and excited to hear about uh, your experiences working on the No Red Ink code base. And uh, so let's let's dive in. Maybe we could get like a little bit of background for anyone who doesn't know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what No Red Ink is, what Elm looks like, big picture, how much Elm there is at No Red Ink? Let's kind of get a little background. Mm, sure, of course. I think for all intents and purposes, we're an educational platform, right? So most of our users are either teachers or students. And we've been writing Elm for our front end for many years. I would guess since uh, 2015, but maybe some earlier experiments are even before that. So, and I would say 99.9% of our front-end code is written in Elm. We still have few lingering pieces of various JavaScript frameworks just lingering in the darkness, <laughs> but no new code is written uh, in those frameworks any longer. Those pieces are waiting to be discovered. <laughs> to find <fighter>. newcomers. <laughs> I think, you know, every time we do um, a hack day, there's someone doing, okay, I should, you know, remove that old page, <laughs> which is still written in React and Elmify it. So it's so common that we use the word Elmify. You know, I think I remember a couple of years ago, there was a large effort to change like 10 of these pages and the whole process was called, you know, Elmifying, yada, yada, yada. Uh -huh. So <laughs> we're we're all trying to elmify some small part of the world. That's our <laughs> elmify people mostly. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> that could be dangerous. Be careful with that. <laughs> so um so architecturally, no red ink is not a single page app, a single single page app. It's multiple, it's embedded as elements on on each page, right? Yeah, that's true. So I, I think I should have said that as a word of warning, like everything mm -hmm. that I'm going to say today is going to be very strongly influenced by that decision. Uh, and I'm sure that there are applications out there which are structured as a one whole single page app for the whole product. And definitely your experience might uh, be completely different. Uh, in our case, I think even at the beginning, we decided to go through this approach of creating an individual endpoint for each page so that we could more easily experiment with Elm at the beginning and further later with different approaches on how to write an Elm app. Of course, nowadays, many of these apps, they share some code or some components or some uh, sort of way of writing Elm. But I think this structure helps us a lot to work at scale, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. So you you bypass some of the. I mean, it's a it's a different type of scaling Elm application than scaling a, a single page app. You don't have the entire routing layer, and all those pieces are handled by Rails or ha I believe Haskell in some instances. We use Haskell just as part of microservices, which don't really serve Elm apps. Well. I'm saying that they serve very rarely used maps, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the majority of the routing is done in Rails. Uh, that is not to say that we do also have single page applications, but they're just one of the many um, apps that we serve. So uh, we have some individual pages where we thought that having an SPA gives a much better user experience. So those are built using you know the SPA uh, framework. But, the one by Ryan Haskell Glass? Uh, no, no, no. So uh, I think when we started writing those, uh, the one that Ryan built wasn't <laughs> didn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty recent, right? Yeah. yeah. So we have like our own little um, wrapper around the one provided by um, the Elm uh, package. Mm -hmm. Right. I saw that in in your blog post. So we'll we'll link to your Elm at No Reading blog post. That's one of the details that I love. You know, when, when no red ink people kind of share little tidbits from the code base, um, I, I always see Richard dropping little 
helpers that seem really cool. And you you have some in this post where you sort of wrap things and custom tailor in a little way where instead of browser.element, you kind of take in a flags decoder and these little things that just make it a little more ergonomic. And Yeah, I think that like makes particular sense in a case where, you know, there, there are going to be many people doing that operation many times. Right? Yeah. I feel like if I'm working on my own project, I wouldn't take the time to do that because, you know, how many LMAPs are you going to create? One. And yeah, probably yeah. one or maybe two or three. Uh, but if you're in a large app and especially with regards to new engineers, right? Like uh, you want to create a page, but you don't really know where to do, uh, what to do. So having a script that, for example, generates all these boilerplate for you it makes things so much easier. And I think also having like some little bits of structure on top of the normal program that uh, Elm provides you makes a lot of things easier, um, such as, you know, tracking events or being able to pass some more context into our applications uh, for many reasons. You know, um, one example I can think of, which I'm sure I mentioned in the article as well, is uh, with regards to accessibility because we want to detect uh, which is the main way that the user is using the site. And to do so, we have to track that in one way or the other. And having that in our program uh, makes it you know, a solved problem, right? That you can just create a new endpoint and you will have that information with you. Right, yeah. I've been thinking about this lately. I, I, I think that, um, you know, create like frameworkizing things, which is sort of what we're talking about here, like creating little mini custom tailored frameworks, right? And for your own purposes, like to me, it's almost like a refactoring process where you you see these patterns emerging where you're doing something over and over and you just try to refactor it, right? Is that kind of, has that been your experience as you've seen these abstractions emerge? Do you see duplication emerging in all of these pages and then you start to abstract it away? Mm, I think that's definitely, you know, like one part of, the, the problem. I wouldn't say that uh, extracting duplication has been our main concern. I think our, our, our mm -hmm. goal it was just mm -hmm. to try to make the big problems easy or make, to hard, make the hard problems easy. And there are some things which are usually a bit awkward to set up. And I think that that's been our main goal with creating these frameworks is to do that. I can still think of some little duplications here and there that we haven't really solved. And it's sort of okay still. And even with these little wrappers, I can remember a few projects as where we still experiment with new ways of setting up um, the program. For example, one of the recent efforts was to find a way to handle models throughout the whole front end. Because right now, every individual program has to handle their own models, decide what to do when they come in front, or you know when you dismiss them, where should the focus return, uh, and things like that. So I think we're just trying to solve these difficult problems and figure out if there's an easy way so that everybody can benefit from those um, fixes. Right, right. So it's more about finding the ways that things could go wrong and trying to create a path where you don't have to think about those everywhere. Yeah. So so you develop new things to to help remove boilerplate or. In ensure consistency or make some hard things easier uh, and use that in one of the pages or one of the part of the project. But since you have a large code base, what do you do to make that use everywhere? Or how do you spread that? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> I, wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking of an answer. I was just playing asking. But now, yeah, I see where, you, where you're going. So this is whether I'm going to disappoint you. We don't use unreview for that. <laughs> but we do have some scripts where we uh, write down deprecations. Uh, mm. And I think this is especially important for our sort of uh, UI component slash storybook you know, sort of component. Uh, which is called uh, Narrating QI. And which is published on the it's, it's Yeah, you, you can look it up. And I think from the repository, should we also be able to reach a Netlify, a Netlify page where you can see the preview of all those UI components. And 
I think that's quite a nice example because all those components are version. So usually when we release a new version of, a, let's say, a model, we want to have a way to keep track where in the app we're using all the older versions. So we have mm-hmm. this little Python script that we run as part of our um, CI suite uh, that keeps track of that and just writes it down a file. I think um, we used to have some rules like, you know, this file can't get bigger than this or bigger than that. But I think mm-hmm. just having that information somewhere is quite important and to, to be able to track you know, like where are all these deprecated usage usages of these libraries? Something that I don't think hasn't been published yet, but uh, I think uh, Aaron has been working on it on and off is a way to do some of these upgrades in an automatic fashion. Yeah, uh, I- I'm not sure how much is available uh, on GitHub, but I think one day we will see it in, in its true vision and it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. But um, so when I asked the question, I was also w- wondering. I was I wasn't even thinking about it on review. Although it it does sound something like that Elm review can help with definitely mm-hmm. even with the uh, the Python script that you mentioned. But I was thinking like, how do you organize that on a company level at a team le- uh, team base level? Like, do you just go, hey uh, everyone, can you please all start using this component this way or this uh, start using this tool or how do you do it basically yeah i'm not sure if this is a company-wide uh, thing but it's definitely something that i truly believe in is that if you want to get a change across a code base it has to be automated mm. and i think especially in the latest years i've come to this, this firm belief that if you want to have something enforced you have to make it part of an automated process. At least partially, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, at least partially. Like, mm-hmm. what can be done? But I think if it can't be automated, then you should be okay that it's not enforced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I come from a Ruby on Rails sort of background. And I think there's a lot in the Ruby community, this idea of writing beautiful code or, you know, doing things the right way. But I don't think there's much focus into finding a way to make it automated. Mm-hmm. And I think in many of these choices, uh, we've tried to come up with ways to define these constraints in code and make them part of CI so that, you know, everybody learns through, you know, these like t- um, failing tests, right? And if someone really hates the idea behind the rule, you know, they can make a case for it, disable the rule, you know, that's fine. But I think at least like it makes the conversation very much practical. Also, like you can look exactly what the code is doing if there's something that you disagree with. But I think you lose all these bike shedding, you know, about, oh, but I think this is the right way to structure something. (laughs) Like you you have to, in my opinion, you have to accept the, the differences then at that point when you can't enforce it in any way. Absolutely. Can't agree more. So how do you try to automate these changes? What tools do you have? Do you use scripts to change your code? And how do you do that? Do you use Elm syntax? Do you use uh, Elm language sitter, tree sitter? What do you do? I think right, if I think about the scripts we've used over time, it's just mm-hmm. a mishmash of every possible thing that you, you can think of, like simple batch scripts, programs that run in Python that grab through the Elm files to figure out import uh, trees dependencies and shove them into an SQLite database to create, uh, you know, these recursive queries where you can figure out the whole dependency trees. Uh, I've personally written some Ruby scripts because I couldn't find something and I just did it. So I think it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, I'm sure that Brian has done a lot of work with tree sitter. So I'm sure that now probably that's the same script is using tree sitter uh, nowadays. Uh, but I think it, it's sort of like an implementation detail. Um, like as long as the script is there, even if it's a bit buggy, it's fine. You know, as long as the general idea of that, uh, you know, like these um, constraints are enforced. Are these more flagging inconsistencies or making things consistent uh, or, or a mixture of both? How to say 
a mixture of both. Like I think maybe now, like um, it's not like I don't want to you know give this impression that we have thousands of scripts, but I feel right now we might running three or four, and one of them is Elm Review. So maybe we will talk throughout the episode. Um, maybe later a bit more in detail about how we adopted Elm Review in the code base. <laughs> um, but uh, I think some of the things that we're going to talk about, they're also not enforced, right? So, but I think that's the point I was trying to make that since they're not enforced through the code, uh, maybe we have this uh, tacit and shared uh, understanding that this is the right way to do it, but we're also okay with other ways of structuring the code. I don't think you'd ever you know, encountering a code review saying, oh, don't structure the code in this way. If, you know, like, I feel like that's like what we've sort of agreed upon that, you know, like it's basically fine since that we have the separated Elm apps also to write code in a slightly different way. And also it's just like in the same nature of a very large application is that, you know, every once in a while you will bump into an Elm app that nobody has touched for, you know, a year. Right. And uh, everything that now we think is the right way to um, write Elm apps wasn't at the time. So I think it's just like a, a common, you know, like to be able to accept diversity in the code base uh, to a level, you know, where all the types are passing, the all the types are checking, all the tests are passing. I think there's some, you know, things that we cannot let go of. But apart from that, I think, you know, we are pretty uh, accepting of, you know, different ways of writing Elm. Yeah. The most important thing is it works. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, you know, without diversity and experimentation, you don't grow and learn new techniques. So I could, I could imagine that's part of the secret sauce of stumbling upon these techniques that are really effective over time. And I think also you end up going back and forth on beliefs and ideas, right? Like everyone's, you know, while you think, okay, I'm, I need to write a library and I need a way to pass options to this library. And I really like the Elm HTML design, you know, where you pass this list of attributes. Uh, but every once in a while you bump into the other issue that, oh, but what should I do when someone passes the same option twice or they pass them duplicated, right? And then you think, okay, well, I'm going to pass a map there. And you, it feels to me like every once in a while you think, okay, this is the best solution. And then you think about another slightly different application and your best solution is a bit tricky and you go back to the other one. So I feel even in some of our UI components, you can still see this. Like if you look at the shape of the APIs, so some of them, they really love this, you know, Elm HTML pattern. Some of them really like this option of creating a sort of option map and then you have this final call which you know instantiates the thing or you know renders the checkbox right where you do uh, this pipeline sort of syntax i like the the builder pattern yeah the builder pattern sorry i couldn't remember the name <laughs> yeah i mean in api design Jeroen and i have talked about this a lot but you 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 have to have all those tools at your disposal because it's really about modeling uh, different solutions to a problem. And the only way to really do that is to try a lot of things and really deeply think about the problem. And the the, the needs of, of your particular domain can change over time. Um, there There's personal preference in there when there are different ways to do things to achieve the same solutions and, and get the same constraints. So all that stuff, it's really interesting how that stuff evolves uh, within the context of a, a company's code base. So what are what are some of the things that 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 you think have been really important for like helping keep a large code base maintainable? Like what have been some of those techniques that you think have helped you? Maybe the easiest answer is the Elm compiler. I feel like that's the major helper, right? Especially when you're making a change to a, to a data structure or to a component that's very widely used or you need to reshape it in some slight different way. Maybe you, when you wrote that component initially, it didn't support a keyboard uh, usage, right? And now it needs to support that. So the surrounding app needs to uh, react to all these different things that the component now can do. Having the Elm compiler just gives you this, you know, this confidence that you can sleep at night. 
right? You, you make the change and it just applies to all the different Elm endpoints that we have. And eventually there will be a time later in the day where the tests are passing and the types are compiling and then that's done. I would say like that's the major thing. And especially if I think about our choice to write in more Haskell, I think that was definitely uh, inspired by the difference in developer experience when refactoring Elm and refactoring Ruby. Just like this idea that you can make this change across 40 files and the change is sound and the change is solid. So I think in that perspective, maybe there's not a true difference between a large code base and a small code base in Elm. At least like that's why I was, um, I was thinking, um, I think yesterday uh, I was mulling over some of the questions about, well, what does it mean to work in a large code base? And truly like now, like I can't really think like, what's the difference really? Uh, <laughs> there are some differences, but like the, at the end of the day, uh, the real thing is that a compiler is going to go through all your code and make sure that all these little constraints that you've sprinkled across the years in the code base, they're all of them, they're all true, right? And I think it's also like this power of like, this, uh, it's like sort of this compound interest, right? That little assertion, that little uh, constraint you wrote seven years ago has been, you know, enforcing that thing since then. And all the new ones that you've written today are going to have this compound effect in five years, right? So it's like this difference, like between, you know, when you invest, uh, you know, 1% of your pension when you're 15 years old, or sorry, when you're 18 years old, uh, as opposed to investing 20% of your income when you're, you know, 50 years old. Like the power of compound interest is just mind boggling. I love that idea that you don't see a clear line between what it's like managing a large or a small Elm code base. Because I, I, I do think that that speaks to what's really fascinating and unique about Elm is that it is, it, it's, it's designed in a way where you, you have to deal with all these cases explicitly. You have to model these constraints explicitly. You have to, it, it doesn't let you get away with not handling something or not being explicit about something or not being precise about something. But then the benefit is you're working with a giant code base and it doesn't feel any different than if you're working with a small code base, which is one of the reasons why it's difficult to kind of share the joy of Elm with people because you show people a to-do list application. They're like, okay, well, that's not that special, but you're like, no, but it's actually like, go make a change in a large code base and see how the compiler walks you through your changes you still get that same experience. Yeah, I think that's like one of the things, um, I'm not sure if Richard uh, has you know, spoken about it publicly, um, but it's like one of those things that you can only experience when you try it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't really, you know, like you can hear it or you can read about it, but up to the moment where you try it and you see it, you just can't believe it. So I think that's what makes it difficult. Like it's difficult to say, well, that same feeling that you get here, you're going to have it in a large code base. And I think, you know, even before I joined the company, I had the same curiosity, right? Like, well, but how does it feel to write Elm at a, a large scale? And people used to tell me, well, we just do it. And I think maybe <laughs> that's the answer. Like, it, like when you're working like on a daily basis, like it doesn't really feel different from anything else. You, you just run Elm test. Like now in our code base, probably has to run 5,000 tests, it takes a minute, but when that's done, you know that everything is connected. All those little pipes are connected in the right way and all the right data are flowing through those little pipes. And, and when, once that's done, you just take it and push it and, you know, go on with your day. Right. Uh, I think one of the nice things is that there's a lot of work that you don't have to do. So, the uh, compiler makes sure that you do all the necessary work, but it doesn't ask you to do more. So it, in, when I was doing JavaScript in a pretty large code base, I, I can imagine that I was doing some refactoring and then a value that I computed somewhere was being passed to a very old or very complex module. And I would have to look at the, at the implementation to make sure that my changes did not break whatever it was doing inside there. But with the compiler, I don't have to do that. I just know if the compiler is still happy, 
I'm happy and we can move on. And I don't have to look at that old and complex uh, module. So that is very refreshing. I think this is extremely important also because of other reasons that might not be evident at first. For example, in our case, we work in distributed teams. So you might make a change which introduces 14 compiler errors and it's at the end of your day and you don't want to be working late because you know you have to go out and eat a pizza or something. Uh, so I think it's, it's just such a good way to leave works for someone else saying, okay, I've been going through in the middle of this change, but here are all the places where like the build is broken. Uh, if you have time, can you take a look and fix all the compiler errors? And uh, I feel it's just like such a good way also to collaborate with other people uh, in this. I think that's what I want to stress, like in this very practical way, right? It's not like you have to write a very long message to try to explain you know, the purpose of your, uh, you know, grand change. And I think that happens a lot um, in other languages where you have to have, you know, really to communicate like your big plan before someone else can take uh, on your work. Uh, well, I said that if, I feel that in Elm, uh, if you made the, you know, the problematic change, the one that is breaking the code, then fixing that becomes a sort of different task, right? Like it, it's like sort of almost mechanical, uh, of course, in some places you have to, you know, look at the code a little bit, see how the uh, pieces of the puzzle fit. But I feel that it becomes almost something that's already done. You know, it's it's just, uh, you know, it's already done in theory. In practice, it's not done. But you know, like the big part of the plan has already been done. The, the scary part is done. Knowing what to change and knowing what to to watch out for. That's the compiler's job. A word that's coming up for me is contracts, because often teams will have to negotiate the contract of an API or like, you know, like a public facing REST API or whatever, or, um, or how different interfaces fit together, um, right? Like when you have different teams, they have to figure out those contracts between these pieces that interconnect. And Elm is so explicit about contracts, whether it's communicating with a server or interfacing with a, a common shared piece of code, the contracts are so explicit. So when negotiating those things between teams, um, it makes it a lot easier because you have this explicit definition of these contracts everywhere you go. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the testing story at No Red Ink. So you mentioned, uh, I think, 5,000 uh, tests. And, and in, in this blog post, you have about Elm at No Red Ink. You talk about some of these details. Maybe you could like walk us through a little bit what it looks like. If you sit down to implement a new feature, what, what does the testing look like for that? Yeah, that's uh, a great question. I love to talk about testing. <laughs> I think in general, a lot of people uh, at Noreading, we are sort of, a lot of people have done Ruby, right? And I think in the Ruby world, there's like this almost obsessive love for testing. You know, it's like, uh, the most common Ruby library is probably RSpec or, <laughs> you know, uh, assertions and stubbing. It's just like the, you know, bread and butter of a Rubyist. So I think that's the reason why in NRI, uh, we do a lot of testing, even in a place where I think a lot of people, when they think, oh, uh, you have static types, therefore you don't need testing. And I think we just love tests so much that we just cannot not write them. <laughs> so I think usually like we always start from uh, what we call an acceptance test. So this is usually written in Ruby. It uses this um, library which drives a real browser. So right now we're using Firefox. It spawns a Firefox instance, opens a copy of the Rails application and tries to click, submit forms, do everything, run assertions on the page. I think usually like that's almost at the level of the user story. Uh, but of course, these tests are really slow because they need to spawn an actual browser instance. So we try to keep those tests to only the happy path. So basically, we don't handle errors. We don't handle possible problems. We just do everything mm -hmm. exactly will lead to a good outcome. And we will assert that the page says, you know, your assignment has been created and then our work is done. 
this is the general flow. Sometimes we will also write some regression tests in this fashion if there's some really critical user experience flows, right? And, and especially, I think, the moment where you figure out a very nasty bug in one of these pages, which is causing a lot of user pain, we like to write um, a test just to cover that, to make sure that it never happens again. So I think this is the sort of, you know, the highest level of testing that I can think of. Actually, that's not true. We even have Cypress tests, which we run against uh, a live staging instance of the application. So interesting. And and you don't, is there a reason that you use, uh, I'm guessing like Capybara or something on the Ruby side and then Cypress uh, for the other acceptance test? Is there a reason that you have the split or if you were doing it fresh today, would you maybe choose Cypress for all of them? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel that I really love Cypress as a tool, but I feel that it's even more flaky than Capybara because, um, and, and, and it also depends on the fact that that piece of infrastructure is always there. So I think there is some value in having capybara specs because, for example, we can very easily parallelize capybara specs. We can create 30 databases and split the test suite across 30 groups and run them concurrently. But we can't create 30 exact copies of the staging instance. I mean, we could, but be like, you know, more difficult and time consuming to do so. So I, I still see there are some benefits in having this, you know, ephem ephemeral database that you just run tests on and you can control how many browser instances you want to spawn. Right. It's more connected to the actual Rails app. So you can do these fine-grained controls as you run these. And tests. also stub some things, right? Maybe in some cases, you don't really want to make all those calls to that certain API because you pay for them, you know, or you're very <laughs> limited. So uh, having the ability there to say, do everything for real, except for this thing is quite um, useful. Do you stub or actually perform queries to, to GraphQL APIs in the process? Because that's one pain point a lot of people run into is how to do end-to-end -end tests against a GraphQL API? I think in our tests, we just run them. So they just hit the endpoint and the endpoint just came back with the result. So we don't do, I think in that perspective, we try to stop as little as possible. In some cases, this cannot be avoided, but in this level of testing, we try to keep it really to the least amount of interference that you can, right. you know, right. that, you, that you can. Yep, as realistic as possible as you go go up the uh, testing pyramid. I noticed in your uh, your post about Element No Red Ink that you you mentioned view tests, and I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective on that because personally, I I haven't found a use case where I've personally found value with view tests, but it seems like you do find value. So I'd be really curious to hear what you think is valuable about that. Yeah, let me just quickly backtrack on that. So I think we, we talked about like this very high level testing. Yes, yes. Right. And I think down this pyramid, I would say immediately uh, below that, uh, I would have what we call the Elm program test. I think that's the right, the, the, the right way to call them nowadays, yep. uh, which is the library that Aaron has uh, been working on, where you can basically set up the Elm application uh, you can assert that certain commands, well, certain effects have been uh, produced. You can simulate the response of the API by providing some sort of response. And I feel like that's, in my mind, is the level immediately below the Rails test. Like this is a test written in Elm. It's much more reliable. It's much faster. But you have to sort of connect the real app, right? So usually in our applications, we pass some JSON so that the page initializes with some data. So that's the right moment for us uh, to also search that, for example, that JSON that we pass um, can be decoded by the Elm application. So for example, this I'm not sure if I talk about this in the blog post, but we have a little bit of code that from our Rails controllers automatically generates JSON blobs and we pass them to these Elm program tests and they try to decode it as a first thing just to ensure the sanity that if we make a big change to a controller that which breaks Elm pages, we notice it 
very quickly because uh, I think that's also something else. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm talking too fast, but Ruby tests are slow. So there's no way you're going to be able to run them uh, on your machine at every change that you make, especially uh, if you're working on your own branch. But Elm tests are fast, which means that if I'm just going for a, a glass of water or going for a little walk, I just run all, the whole town, uh, Elm suite. It will finish in you know 50 seconds. So by the time I'm back from the restroom, I can see if I've broken anything you know across the, the system. So this is like the second level, the Elm program test. Um, and I would say below that, I'll see the view tests where I think the reason why we like those is when you have very large views with a lot of conditionals, right? And inside the Elm program test, I feel it's like a bit awkward to be able to simulate all the possible cases of these conditionals. Mm-hmm. You'd have to click on this button, then click on the other one, then close this model, then do that. But instead, in the view test, you can just pass a model and you can uh, even fuzz the model, right? You can create this um, uh, property that generates thousands of these models, but you want to make sure that no matter how the model is created, inside the view, we can see this and we can see that. I see. Uh, that's that's a great description. Thanks for that. So, so yeah. So, like, if you had, like, a an avatar for a user and if it's a guest user or or a logged in user or an admin, you would have it displayed differently. You could, you could test that and say, uh, if the user is logged in, we see their name somewhere and get confidence on, on just that piece and have a more focused test where you don't have to run through all of the update loops to, to arrive there. Yeah. And I think even then below the view test, we would have what we normally call a unit test, right? And I think we reserve those for the really algorithmic bits. You know, like we have this pretty large and convoluted algorithm that does a lot of stuff and operates with these four data structures and does, you know, some uh, really interesting bits. I think that's where you write unit tests because it's mostly just purely, well, you could argue that even view tests are pure tests, right? They don't even actually write the DOM. But I think that that's the thing. It's like the more you go down into this pyramid, uh, the faster tests get, better you can describe all the possible edge cases, but you're always like exercising the test on a smaller surface. You know, the further down you go, the, you know, you're just testing, you know, the, um, a pin, you know, the, the edge of a pin at some point. Uh, while when you think, uh, all the way to the top, the Cypress test, you're actually even testing, uh, you know, the network connection to the instance that, you know, sits somewhere on AWS. That's, yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. So, so for Elm program tests, has it been challenging to make everything use the effect type in the context of no red ink, or was that pretty natural? It was pretty natural. I feel like in some pages, we start using effects before we start using Elm program tests. Mm, okay. Yeah. Because of testing still or for other reasons? I think maybe for a cultural reason, because in order to write these wrappers to the Elm programs, the thing that we discussed at the beginning of the episode, uh, in order to do that, to write a program that wraps the Elm program, you have already to do that. You have to create like your own effect because there are some of these side effects that you want to propagate down to the actual app. And then there are some events that you want to keep at the level of your wrapper, right? So for example, let's say you want to keep track if uh, the last action um, done by the user was a mouse click or a keyboard press. That event is not going to be propagated to the user application. It's just going to remain at the level of the wrapper. And if you want to do that, uh, you have to be able to separate uh, what is um generic effect that you want to handle inside your wrapper or what is a user effect that you want to propagate down to the user code. So I feel like that's just like something that uh, the moment you get a little bit curious and you try to say, okay, I want to write something like that. How does it work? And you try to write one and maybe it takes you a couple of hours. But from the moment you do that, you realize that, uh, you know, it doesn't cost you much. You just need to have a little function and, you know, you can call it perform. It goes from a com- from a, an effect to a command message. And that's pretty much it. Uh, and you can write your own 
uh, batching logic or sequencing logic of these effects. You can have complete control over uh, what to do, right? I think sometimes on the Elm Slack, I read people saying, oh, I have many of these commands and I want them to behave in this certain way, but right. I don't know how to do that, right? right. And I think what, the moment you do that, you separate the side effect that's command message from your own effect, you realize you basically have complete control over what you want to do with that. Fascinating. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great take on that. Got into that. Yeah. Yeah, it really does um give you a lot more control as a I mean, insofar as you're you're able to be a sort of framework author and you can sit I mean, I, I often think about this sort of like I think we can build our own frameworks in Elm. And I think people sometimes don't realize the power that we have available if we create our own sort of wrappers around things like, you know, these effect types that we can get fine-grained control. You can you can wrap browser.element or browser.application. There are all these things you can do, if, uh, you know, if you have a wrapper layer, you can even have sort of a wrapped state that you can control as a sort of layer of abstraction around the page state, for example, which I, I, I believe you don't explicitly say, but but you hint at in the post where you talk about having this user session and passing that in. This is sort of this wrapped state. So you build your own framework, you know, for, for your custom needs. Okay, so another big question that comes up a lot in the context of larger Elm applications would be managing nested state. This is like one of the really big questions. You, you touch on this in your blog post. So I guess there are two main pieces to this. There's sort of web components, and then there's sort of nested Elm applications. What, what's kind of your, your take on, on that? How do, how do you approach that at NoRedInk? I think this is a really great question because when I wrote the blog post originally, I feel a lot of people around the company, they have different ideas on what to do. I think that most of the feedback I've heard uh, internally about that blog post was exactly about that section. So I think a lot of people, was, their suggestion would be, don't nest state at all. Try to create a component that doesn't need the state in the first place. And I think Evan, at the time, uh, he wrote this sortable table component and that I'm, sh I'm sure is still available that you can check out on how to uh, design um a view which is complex and allows for customization without the need of storing state anywhere. I think that's like one uh, quite brilliant piece of design. I think personally, I'm more in the camp of nest applications, it's fine. Uh, if you feel like there's a necessity to create a new type of message, uh, you know, you can map the HTML, you can handle the new message, do something with it. I feel like if you do it once, you pretty much understand, you know, what the complexity is. I don't think, uh, I, I, I feel like in a lot of places we say, oh, this is too heavy handed and it requires like a lot of glue code. But I don't feel it's that true. Maybe I've just, you know, you know, uh, taken the red pill. So I just can't see <laughs> how, um, how awkward it is. Um, but personally, I'm, I'm in the camp of nest um, applications where you think it makes sense. Uh, you definitely, the first time you do it, you have to probably use HTML map, which is something you might have never used before. And you're maybe going to spend a few minutes to figure out what does it mean to write HTML map? Because when I'm writing list map, I know exactly what I'm doing. But when mm -hmm. I'm writing HTML map, it sounds weird. Yeah. And what is that lowercase MSG, by the way? <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. But but to be fair, there are some challenges as well, right? Like this, how do you convert the top-level message? The, uh, the nested command message needs to be handled, right? Just in the same way. And I think that's also something else that um, shows the importance of having effects, that if you need to have some shared effects or effects that need to introspect it's so nice when you have your own type because the command message type is quite opaque, right? You can't do anything with it anymore. Like once you receive it, the only thing you can do is to propagate it, right? So having a way to inspect that, I think both in tests and in real code is quite valuable because sometimes you just don't want to do it straight away. You want to wait a little bit, right? Uh, or you want to take a look 
peek inside the effect before deciding to execute it. That's actually, uh, you know, I often say wrap early, unwrap late. And that actually lines up with that because if you, in a sense, you're sort of creating this type that is this lowest common denominator. When you create a command, it's the lowest common denominator. And you want to sort of create this type that you need for the lowest common denominator to pass to the outside world, whether it's a JSON type, a command type. And you want to create that low level, lowest common denominator type that the outside world needs as late as possible. Because like you said, you it, it limits your ability to inspect it, interact with it, modify it if you turn it into the lowest common denominator right away. And it's also less constrained because it just could be many things instead of having a clear type. When you said that, I was thinking about JSON values, right? Like eventually there will be a moment where we take our model and we need to encode it into a JSON value, which is this opaque type. But imagine if that's the first thing that we did, right? We wouldn't even be able to change the model after we encode it to a JSON, right? Like um, when it gets like to this, uh, you know, base level of information, then you can't do anything with it anymore. Uh, you, you can decode it again. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a great pattern. Right. Yeah. Highly recommend at, at every function. <laughs> every <laughs> function call, decode, encode. Yeah. You mentioned this sort of quill web component in the blog post, and that, that's come up in other um, conference talks about no red ink. How widespread are web components in the no red ink code base? Could you maybe give a short summary of what you use web components for? Yes, uh, of course. So basically, web components uh, are this part of the HTML, spe HTML specification. And there are ways where you can create uh, basically new HTML tags, right? Uh, you can create your own uh, Elm-editor. And you have complete control when this node is added to the DOM, how it needs to react you know, in case uh, events happen. You basically have this little API where you can create your own new tag. And I think in the Noredink code base, uh, we use it whenever we want to interface ourselves with something that it's awkward to do in pure Elm. I think, for example, uh, the case of Quill is a good one because we all know that uh, content editable is a very difficult HTML API to work with. Uh, the behavior of the API is weird. It has a lot of edge cases. It doesn't behave in a nice way. So I think many people, you know, they think, okay, I'm going to create this little wrapper around content editable. And then three days later, they come back and say, oh no, this is just too difficult. I mean, there was the Implementing Elm podcast, which had a whole season about mm, this topic. Yeah, right, right. Yep. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, it's just like very difficult to do it uh, in a good way, uh, even for a normal desktop browser. And then you start thinking about mobile browsers, Safari mobile, and you just realize that it's just too much of a task for a single human being in, you know, in its lifetime. <laughs> so I think this is like one of the cases where using a web component allows you to use some JavaScript code that someone else has written, which handles all of these uh, API edge cases. But at the same time, it gives you this little seam, right? This little bridge, and you can send data to the thing from Elm, receive data from the web component, and be able to integrate it seamlessly uh, in your Elm application. Uh, I think a word of warning is that since it's JavaScript code, any error in the web component will cause crashes, right? So I think that's the word of warning, you know, like every moment you get a little bit outside of the Elm world and you just start executing JavaScript code, uh, you open yourself to random crashes. And in fact, they do happen in some, you know, I can see it in our bug tracker. Every once in a while, the library just hits some edge case and just crashes. But I think it's quite, it's really nice. Like if you've never done it, uh, I definitely recommend trying creating a simple web component that does something. And another case where we use it quite a lot is, for example, for read aloud, right? We want uh, kids to be able to listen to portions of the page being read aloud. Uh, and 
we haven't spent the time to write a pure Elm voice synthesizer, right? And instead, we know that the browser has some good support. So we just include this web component everywhere and we pass the data in from Elm. The web component just renders itself and it knows that, uh, you know, whenever someone presses the button, it needs to read out, you know, the contents of the section of the page and we don't have to worry about that. Uh, and it, it also means that you don't need to set up the, um, like the port interaction. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. You can do it declaratively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this also means that, for example, as we were mentioning before, it just makes some things hassle free. You don't need to set up all the uh, glue logic to send things back and forth. You just create it. You know that this is self-contained. We will do one thing and do it well. Hopefully it won't crash. But, but I think, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like this really nice way of making hard things simple. Uh, and, you know, even in Elm, there's like some things which are very hard to do. Uh, and if you figure out the right way to solve this problem, why not? I feel definitely every time I write, I work in that area of the code, I'm three times more careful than when I'm mm -hmm, writing Elm mm -hmm. code, right? It's like every time you're sort of, you know that, you know, like if you make a mistake here, it's going to be bad. Uh, and instead, when I'm making the changes in the Elm code base, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, like eventually some something will catch the problem. But whenever I'm, I'm writing a web component, I know that I could be causing the whole page to crash if I'm not careful here. You use it in some key places, but you try to use it sparingly for a handful of, of these helpers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think especially in these cases, uh, let's say an editor, uh, it's really awkward if you want to implement using a port, right? Because there's so many events that can go towards the editor. You now you can write text, you can select text, you can change the style of the text, you want to add an image. There's like so much stuff that you need to uh, thread through, right? If you wanted to write a port. But instead, if you, all you're doing is to send some data, receive some data back that you need to serialize, uh, then that's not too bad. Right. And we, we often say in the Elm community how, you know, don't, don't write components. Components are a, an object-oriented sort of paradigm and, you know, write, write helpers and pass state around. But you can write web components. And that's what web components are there for. They, they can encapsulate state. They are components. And you can use them declaratively and not worry about the state. That's someone else's problem. <laughs> Just like using... Um, you know, if you use like a detail element from the browser API, then you've got this expanded collapse state. You don't need to own that somewhere. The browser owns it. And that's good. It's declarative state. It's actually super fun, right? Because I think we think of uh, web components as the part where the JavaScript exists. But actually, there's this library which allows you to add Elm um, bits to a React application. And it does mm. so through web components. Right? Oh, cool. So inside the, the Elm lives inside the web component and it lives within the larger context of a React application. So, you know. That's uh, neat. We'll, we'll have to get tomato. a link for that. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. I mean, I think that there's room for some nice tooling around using web components in Elm in general. But uh, it would be really interesting to have some tooling for creating a little Elm component and embedding that in your app as a web component. I wonder, I'm not sure if that would be a good idea, bad idea, but uh, seems oh, like I, I've done it at least a few times. I once had to rewrite an Elm application to React entirely, and I did it bit by bit. So uh, at the start, I was injecting React through web components in an Elm application, and then more and more. And then at some point, I had to reverse everything. So now it was an Elm app uh, that was using React so, uh, web components inside it, and that was itself uh, wrapped in a giant React app. That that was kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it actually was fun because I, I kind of like that. But uh, the quality did drop because it, it was an Elm. But I think that's a testament to the power of these HTML API. I think a lot of times, you know, we're yeah. quite critical, you know, like drag and drop <clears throat> or content editable. <laughs> But I think there are some uh, HTML APIs there which are really nice, really powerful. They're at the right level of abstraction and they just work really well. 
So we should probably link to uh, the Elm community slash JS integration examples repo, which has some examples with working with web components and other JavaScript uh, interop techniques. I can also link that React Elm components that thing that I was mentioning. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's like, I can find it. I will search it and send it to you all. That'd be great. So are there any other things that, that you think would be interesting for, for listeners to hear about, Ju, uh, that you've learned from your experience working at on this large Elm code base? The thing which I left, you know, as the last cherry on top yes. is Elm Review. I think it is like, we, we just love it. <laughs> In a large code base, a lot of code just goes unused. And, and I'm just talking about a single Elm Review, you know, plugin. Yeah, package. But I think like that one for me is like the nicest one. Just like to show you how much code gets written and just abandoned. And then, you know, for ages it's lived there in that file and nobody cares about it. And then suddenly you have a tool that says, well, all the code that you don't use, how about we just chuck it? And then you rerun the build, nothing fails. And it's just, I think it's just like so good uh, when you have a large code base where a lot of the changes that you make are quite localized, right? And every once in a while, someone leaves the company and all that context is gone and we make a little change. And, you know, it's like all is good when the compiler compiles, but I think there's still some loss of information or like there's some extra information which is not needed anymore. But when you're trying to regain the context by reading the, the source, you have to sort of still understand it. And it's so nice to know that, no, everything that I'm reading in this file matters, right? Like there's no more guesswork to be done. And I think that's like what really makes me excited about uh, Elm Review. Uh, I think maybe it's interesting to uh, know that you don't have to apply it on your whole code base. So I think um, that originally was my problem because I ran it initially maybe uh, a year ago on the repository and it yielded uh, 30,000 uh, errors. Right? <laughs> some of them could be out of fixed, some of them could not be out of fixed. So it's a difficult thing, right? Like if you had to say, okay, I'm going to spend the next three weeks fixing and review problems, right? So I feel like it's really important, like when you're in that situation to come up with a plan. Uh, so I think this is what I mentioned before. Um, I wrote this very simple Ruby script that just selected one little slice of our application and just applied and review on that. And the first thing I did was to add that to our suite, to our, you know, to our test suite so that the moment that little slice of the code is covered, is going to remain covered. And someone is going to get annoyed because their build is going to fail because they, you know, uh, they, you know, deleted some code and didn't clean it up. Uh, but I think having this guarantee just helps you that you don't feel you're, you know, alone, uh, fighting this, you know, big war, right? Like you have like these little things that you clean up and they remain clean. And I think over the course of maybe, as I said, like six months, you know, every once in a while I would like work a little bit on them, but it's like this, as I said, it's like another cases of this compound interest, right? Like you make this effort, but it's not wasted. Uh, and I can think a lot of work which I've done in the past where I try to clean up this bit of code and then maybe I can't really communicate well the intent or, you know, uh, I change my mind throughout and I forget to go and change the other code which I've written before. And in having a tool that can do that, that you can express what you believe is the right thing to do and having run at every run of the CI is just, you know, invaluable. <laughs> Sorry, I rented a lot, but I'm really excited about this. You, you can rent <laughs> uh, for hours. <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. I think that you would have an easier time today doing this because some rules have more fixes than a year ago or two years ago, two years ago. It's yeah, it's barely two years old. Um, also there's a new, the suppression system now. Mm, I, I've, I've read, uh, in the change log, it looks cool. <laughs> yeah. I think it would make it a lot easier, mm. but yeah, you definitely want to, to make sure that everything goes out at some points. 
But I guess this is also related to what we were saying before, that just because a tool exists, I feel like I really recommend people just like to try to play around with things and you know think this tool is doing this, but it's not exactly what I like. Uh, what is a very easy experiment they can run and I can just, you know, uh, lie to the tool. I can tell the tool, okay, this is the whole project. Just run on this. <laughs> <laughs> Having like this very quick and simple example, like will tell you, is this really what I want? Is this what I need? Before you commit to making, you know, the big change or, uh, you know, adopting the technology. I think just like this idea of like being able to create short and small experiment to validate your assumptions, um, is very important. Are there any other, um, Elm review rules you can think of that uh, you've been making use of that have been particularly helpful? Or has it mostly been the the unused stuff that's been the most valuable? Uh, the unused stuff uh, for me is the most valuable, um, like unused constructors, unused functions, um, unused imports. I, I, I've seen some new rules that are coming out, which I think they look really good. I think that's also like something that I've been planning to experiment with. Uh, even though I want to be careful also with the runtime uh, of running Elm review on the whole code base. Right now, I think we've gotten to a point where I just run Elm review. Maybe it takes, uh, in our code base, probably it takes like a couple of minutes to run. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, uh, so that's also why I haven't been adding old rules because I still want people to be able to have that sort of medium sort of feedback loop when you can still run something on your computer uh, to give you a sense of perspective. Our Ruby suite takes 20 minutes to run on CI where we break it into 20 chunks, right? So if you had to run this locally on your computer with just a single browser, it would take 400 minutes to, to run this thing, right? So I think that's the sort of, you know, meter of judgment. Like I want something that in the course of a tea break, you know, it can give you an answer if, uh, like a, an interesting answer. And I think up to when it's at that point, a feedback loop is still okay. But anything slower than that, I feel it's just like too much friction for some to, to ask someone to use this uh, as part of your daily workflow. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like running Elm Review in, in, my local, in my small packages is just so fun. But running it in my, uh, on my work project feels painful because we have a lot of rules and we also have a pretty large code base uh and yeah it takes maybe a minute or maybe slightly less than a minute and it already feels so painful <laughs> but, but, but also partially because i'm the author and i know ah, I, I need to find a way to make it faster and uh i have some ideas but yeah everything takes time but uh, i remember that uh when i uh presented elm review at the paris meetup the first time, uh, one of the first questions I got was, how fast does it run? Like, not what, what can you do with it or how, <laughs> how sound are the reported errors? It's like, how fast is it? And I was like, ah, I don't know. When's uh, the rest version coming out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there like a tricky implementation of Rust? I'm sure there is. There must be. I, I think there is, but it might, have, it might be the tricity for Rust that I'm confusing it with. Oh yeah, I think if I think, you know, of like the recent changes we've introduced, uh, I'm really euphoric uh, about uh, adding uh, Elm Review. And it's not just me. I think, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, this is really great. Just having, I think it's just this sort of other mind that takes a look at the whole code base and gives you this, uh, this other representation of it, right? Saying, okay, these other constraints, which are not enforced by the compiler, they're enforced by this other sort of compiler. You know, if you squint hard enough, it's just another compiler, really. And it's doing some other work. Uh, you can enforce some other rules. Uh, I think before we were mentioning deprecation, right? So I think this is uh, something that Elm Review can do really well. You have this module and it's calling this method and you would like to deprecate it in a soft way, maybe, uh, at first. Uh, you can very easily write an Elm Review rule. And I think the beauty about this sort of work is that it's quite infectious. So from taking inspiration from Elm Review, we also written our own rules for Rubacup, which is the sort of, you know, Ruby linting 
tool that we use. And I think if I've never seen how to write an Elm review rule, I would have never bothered writing a Rubicup rule. Uh, but once I've done one, I'm like, yeah, it's basically the same thing. You walk through this thing and this is how, you know, the, the function call is expressed in the Ruby uh, AST. And once you've done one, looking at the other is just, you know, um, a game of, you know, find the differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll be curious in, in a year or two to, to check back and hear, because uh, it, I mean, it sounds like the sort of automation you do running Python scripts and Ruby scripts and tree sitter scripts and, and that sort of thing to, to analyze the code base and automate things. I can imagine there'll be more custom no red ink Elm review rules coming. So uh, I'll be, I'll be curious to check back in on that. And by that time, Joran will have written completely in Rust and will exactly. run like in one second. <laughs> then all our problems will be gone. No pressure. <laughs> I think that's the main takeaway of this episode. Yurin's rewriting Elm Review and Rust. Can't wait. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> to be fair, I feel that the Elm test runner, which is written in Rust, is not that's significantly, significantly no, no. faster than the one written in Node. So maybe there are some problems which can't be just magically fixed by Rust. So I agree, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the issue is that it would take a lot of time to, to rewrite it in Rust just to make sure that there are improvements. <laughs> more, more likely, Jeroen is just going to make Elm 50 times faster with his... Uh, Elm Optimize level two improvements he've, he's been working on and then uh, problem solved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, Ju, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so uh, I believe the, um, the last I heard, No Red Ink has open uh, positions for Elm developers and for Haskell developers. Loads. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So feel free to check us out. Yeah, I've been working here for some time. I'm still here. So I think that's, you know, okay. <laughs> like, that's all we can ask for as developers. Like we're for a place where you just don't, you know, dread it. And I think <laughs> that's pretty much good. You can work on Elm and it feels just like working on a small Elm application. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, where, can, uh, where can people go to follow you and find out more about you? You can just go to my website. It's called J-U-L-I-U. Uh, that is, and that's all. There are all my uh, little useless blog posts about useless projects. And, <laughs> and maybe there's a couple of useless articles, uh, useful articles, but that's the ratio of, you know, signal to noise. Del- delightful, <laughs> delightful articles. Actually, Yurun and I used your Elm performance articles quite a bit for our performance episode. So lots of good stuff. Check it out. Well, thanks again for, for coming on, Ju. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. And Yurun? Until next time. Until next time.